If you uh, have a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 is where we're going to be today. And as you turn there, let me draw your attention to a couple things. Uh, One is that I hardly ever give commercials for an upcoming sermon. Um, But I am really excited for next week. Uh, We're always excited for the Word of God to be opened Um, But next week, before we dive into Galatians, the following week, um, there's a big week for us next week is the end of the month, so it means family dinner next Sunday night. We'd love for you to come to that. Um, But before we dive into Galatians, as we begin February, uh, we are going to stop and look at the Bible itself and answer the question, how in the world can you trust, before we look verse by verse through an entire book of the Bible, how can you trust that these words are actually the words that Paul wrote, and these words are actually the words that Jesus said? How do you know that that is true? How can you know? Can you know that it's true? We're going to look at all of those things, and it's going to be a little nerdy, but I promise you, you'll make it through. I will guide us along the way, Um, but we are going to look and address um, the, the um, dependability of the scriptures, of the manuscripts. And uh, some of you have and are constantly hearing different opinions about those things, that we can't trust this, that it's essentially a big, long game of telephone, that over the years the message has changed. Uh, and then the Da Vinci Code came out and says you can't trust hardly any of it at all, and what does that mean? And all these different theories are out there, and we're going to look at the reliability of God's Word and how you can know that what you have in this book is what Jesus said way back then. And what Paul wrote, as we're going to look at today, is actually the letters and the words that Paul wrote um, as the Holy Spirit guided him um, in his writing. So, like I said, podcasts will be available if you've already got plans, but I'd love for you to, uh, to remember that and join us next week. Um, and then lastly, um, as a former student pastor, um, I absolutely love kids and students and the ministry that happens there, and uh, I think you saw our post this week that we're looking for eight more people to jump in and serve once a month. If you can consider that, that'd be great, but I also want to direct your attention to um, Element Weekends coming up, and uh, we reached out to the team, and Carrie Davis, many of you have worked with her and served alongside of her and gotten emails from her. Um, She's let us know that we have a lot of students um, that are interested in going, but they need scholarships uh, this year. Uh, I met two of them on Wednesday night um, that would love to go, but there's no way they and their families have the means to send them to this retreat. So if you're able, and like I said, we never guilt anyone to do anything. Uh, we think grace is a much better, much better motivator than guilting you um, to try to release something out of your hand. But if you feel compelled by the grace of God and the kindness that he's shown in your life um, to help some of these students get to Element Weekend. Um, you can go to PushPay. If you give online, there's a spot there for Element Scholarships. You can go to elementweekend.com, um, and elementweekend.com is weekend with no vowels, so it's elementwkend.com. That's uh, just the cool way to do it these days. And then, um, Or you can just write a check and put Element in the memo, and we would totally get that where it needs to go. But if that's you, we want to make that available to you. Um, We'd love to get as many students as we can um, around the gospel that weekend. God uses these weekends when we set apart our schedules and we remove ourselves from our commitments and we surround ourselves with his children and his word on an extended basis. And uh, we'd love to do that. So like I said, no guilt necessary or required. 
But if you feel moved to do that, uh, we would joyfully receive it. So um, those are those announcements. Um, we're going to dive into our text this morning, and uh, Kylie Steele is going to read it. So hopefully now you're in Philippians 4. Um, Kylie's going to read verses 4 through 9, and uh, she's asked me to hold the mic for her, so I'm going to do a good job with that. But if you'll stand as she reads this, uh, then I'll pray, and we'll dive into our text this morning. So you ready? Awesome. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you, Kylie. Father, we love you. God, I'm thankful for your word. God, it's, it's the means by which we can know who you are. God, and you don't change. That who you've revealed yourself to be in your word is what we can trust. God, we can trust that you are who you say you are. That you've done what you said you came to do and that you will do those things in your word that you've yet to do. Um, God, I pray that as I, a dying man, preach to dying men and women the, the life of the gospel. God, that we would not feel comfortable here in this life. God, that Paul writes in the chapter before this, that we are citizens of heaven if we're in Christ. God, that that is our home. And the fact that you have given us breath and that you sustain our breath uh, means that there's work to do for the glory of your name, for more enjoyment in our own hearts with you. Um, so God, I pray um, that we would realize our frailty, that we would fall on your dependability in the solid rock of who you are and your word, and that God, you would meet us here. Change us, shape us. God, I'm thankful um, for your providence this past week. And God, we pray for Ken that he would continue to heal his body. God, that he would have a, 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 a healthy week, that he would progress. Um, God, to the glory of your name. And uh, God, that we would continue to give you glory um, in that situation. So God, be with him. Pray for his internal organs, God, that they would um, receive the surgery well and that they would begin to function properly. And, uh, God, that we would uh, worship you more um, for your kindness in that situation. But, God, you're worthy of our worship regardless of what happens in any of our lives. Um, so, God, I'm thankful for texts like this today. Um, in a week that's full of anxiety and a life that's full of anxiety, God, that you give us the remedy in your word. So, God, help us to see it and help us to see you in this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as Kylie read, um, we are going to end our series on prayer, and we're going to talk about um, prayer and anxiety, and how those two things collide, how those two things um, essentially, not necessarily go together, but how um, there's a remedy in the scriptures when it comes to our anxiety. And I want to be clear, I'm not necessarily talking about the clinical level of anxiety. Um, we 
firmly believe that in God's grace, his common grace, that he has blessed doctors and nurses and really smart people with the intelligence to come up with modern medicine. And if you need that um, to cope with clinical anxiety, I'm not preaching against that. I'm not saying quit that and start praying necessarily, um, but I am gonna tell you to start praying if you're not. Um, But I just wanna make that kind of disclaimer at the beginning um, that we're talking about just the general anxiety of life. Um, the stress of life. And I also want to be clear, I'm not talking about the anxiety that's like, man, I wonder who's going to get eliminated on The Bachelor this week. And, you know, it's, it's causing me to, to really ponder and, and to question. I'm not talking about that kind of anxiety, right? I wonder if uh, the Memphis Tiger football team will ever be good again, um, right? I'm not talking about those kind of things. Um, life has enough anxiety on its own, <laughs> than for us to to get caught up in the trivial stuff. And all that stuff is fine and well and good and all that. But I'm talking about just the general anxieties of life. That all of us face the stresses of this life, the brokenness of this life, the anxiety of this life about who we're gonna be when we grow up and where we're gonna go to school and we gotta make sure we go to the right school and we gotta get the right major and then we gotta um, have the right degree so that we can graduate at the right time with um, the right amount of debt or no debt so that we can have a place to live and we can get the right career and we can get the right internship before we get the right career and then we gotta find the right place to live in this town which is nearly impossible with the interest rates and all of those things. But we gotta find out where we're gonna live and then we gotta figure out who I'm gonna marry and the dating scene and all while I'm doing this I've got to make sure that I'm out there and I'm meeting people so that I can find a mate. And then I got to figure out how to date. And do we text now? Do we call now? Do we not text? Do we not call? Do we message? You know, can I just slide in the DMs? What do we do there? And then I meet this person. And then how do we go on a date? And then do we have kids? Do we get married? All of those things. How do we raise our kids? Where do they go to school? And we got to go to the right school. And we got to make sure our house is in order. And all during this time, we got to make sure we look good while we're doing it. So we got to post on Facebook. And we got to post on Instagram. And we got to make sure that everybody else knows that we're doing great. And we're raising our kids. And that's just normal life. And then we have the brokenness of wayward children and divorce and moving and not being able to pay the bills and job layoffs and marriage ruts and kids making bad decisions, not feeling like we measure up, wondering how we're gonna provide for the family. And this is the life we live. Jesus is always true but it's very true when he says, tomorrow has enough trouble on its own, amen? It just does. There is enough anxiety to go around in this life. It is the brokenness and the fallenness of the world that we live in. And here's why it's so dangerous. If you remember, we're not gonna reteach it today, but if you look back at Matthew 6, um, during the Sermon on the Mount, um, when Jesus says, um, Don't be anxious about your life, what you're gonna eat, drink, wear, all those things. Look at the birds. Remember we talked about let the birds preach to you. They're not worried about God providing for them. And how much more does God care about you than he does about the birds? You're made in his image. Let the birds chirping, let that preach to you during the day that, hey, they're not worried. I don't need to be worried. I don't need to be anxious. And he says, look at the lilies and God provides for them. He clothes them. But then he says this. He talks about all our anxieties and then he contrasts it with, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Meaning, that one of the ways the enemy can derail you from seeking the kingdom of God and the purposes of God is to get you caught up in your anxiety. For some of us, your biggest problem isn't your problems. It's your anxiety about what you think are your problems. And the enemy would love nothing more than to get us all stirred up and all caught up in our anxiety. 
The Greek word for anxiety just means to be pulled or to be torn in all directions. And some of you are like, that's my Monday, right? That's, that's every day that ends in Y for me, being pulled and torn in all directions. And the enemy, instead of causing you to, to fall into any kind of major sin, instead, and he would love to do that, instead of causing you to fall into any kind of major heresy, what he would love to do Instead of you seeking God and his face and his joy and his peace and his purposes in your life and for your family is to just get you all wrapped up in your circumstances and to cripple you with anxiety. And we know today that too much anxiety is not just bad for your health, but it can kill you. That there are people who go to the doctor and it's because they have a slight pain and the doctor says, whoa, 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 no, no, like you need surgery like your anxiety is about to kill you like your blood pressure is through the roof and what if you oh i just worry about you know the job and this and that and that and i've just got all this stuff and i've just been holding it in and the doctor's hey you need to sit down right that this doesn't just affect us spiritually but this can affect us physically and not just that there's the physical aspect of it but anxiety causes us to compromise on seeking the kingdom of god all the time that your anxiety to have good grades, students, will tempt you to cheat in school, won't it? I've got all this anxiety. I've got to do well. I've got to perform well. I've got to make my parents happy. I've got to have the right grades. And in all that anxiety comes this temptation to take the shortcut. Some of us are anxiety <clears throat> about work and providing and finding our identity in our job and our success in our job can tempt us to cut corners at work, can't it? A lot of us, teenagers, this is the definition of being a teenager, is you have a God-given desire to be accepted and to be liked, and that anxiety around that, the problem with it is, is God gave it to you, we just try to fill it in all the wrong places. We look for these finite things to try to give us acceptance, and the problem with that is we can compromise on who we are, on the word of God, and what he's called us to do and purposes to do, to try to feel this cheap form of acceptance with the people around us. We can compromise on our values. We can compromise on our convictions. We can compromise on our boundaries. You name it. Because anxiety, I just want to be accepted. I just want to feel approved. I just want to be welcomed and liked. Can cause us to compromise spiritually on our values. Our anxiety around I just want intimacy can cause us to look for cheap substitutes in all the wrong places. Websites, <clears throat> relationships we know we shouldn't be in, you name it. Anxiety about our schedule can cause us to not keep our word with others, can cause us <clears throat> to take out our punishment and our stress on others, that it can cause us to compromise in all sorts of ways. And the good news is, is Paul gives us a remedy to anxiety in Philippians chapter four. And I know we're just jumping into the end of the book of Philippians, so I wanna give you some context here. But Paul is writing <clears throat> from a prison in Rome. Paul was imprisoned on his second missionary journey. And during this imprisonment in Rome, Paul actually wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon in this one stint that he's in prison. And Paul, which I think is, is a message in itself, is writing to this church who's clearly not in prison. They're in Macedonia is what it was called back in Paul's day. They're in Philippi. And the guy in prison is writing and saying, don't be anxious, Hey guys, quit being anxious about your life. 
Quit being anxious about what's going on as he's bound and shackled in prison. And he's writing to this group of people say, hey, don't be anxious. So he knows something that we need to know. And if you wanna know kind of the summary of the book of Philippians, I'll show you in just a second um, because it, it informs everything about what Paul is saying here in verse four. If you look at it, Philippians four, verse four, he says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now that's not just like a customary greeting. That's not just a nice thing to say. That's actually written in the imperative in the Greek. It's a command. That he's commanding this church by the Holy Spirit, inspiring him as he wrote this, to rejoice. And it says always. And in case we didn't get that, there's three instances in this one verse that tell us he actually means always. One is the present tense of the verb, and so it's meant to be a continuous action or a repeated action that continuously you and I would rejoice in the Lord. Then he uses the word always, which literally just means at all times. And then in case we didn't get the picture, he says, I'm gonna say it again, rejoice. And he puts the command at the end of the sentence one more time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And to our natural human response is, who does Paul think he is? He doesn't know me and the weights that I'm carrying and the burdens that I'm carrying and the things that I'm navigating. Who is Paul to tell me to rejoice? Well, there's some things about Paul that we can see from scripture. One, he's writing this while he's in prison and he's saying, hey, rejoice in the Lord. We also see in scripture that Paul has been shipwrecked, that he's been beaten multiple times, he's been whipped, and he will eventually be beheaded. And this man is writing to this church and he's saying, rejoice at all times. And I wanna be clear, he's not preaching this blind optimism that we hear today, the power of positive thinking. He's not just, hey, have a positive outlook in your life. Hey, have some positive energy as you go throughout your day and things will just happen to, to work out better. No, he's not preaching this secular blind optimism that we see all the time. You know, hey, I just had good energy today, which really just means my circumstances went the way I wanted them to, right? And I was just kind of coasted on the, no. He's not talking about that. It's not blind positivity. Hey, this is terrible, but I'm just gonna choose to have a positive outlook. No, what does he say? Where does our rejoicing find its root? In the Lord. And what he's saying here is, and no matter what circumstances you face, find your joy in the Lord. Root it there, anchor it there. Whether you survive a plane crash or whether you're stressed with the, the weight of Monday and all the emails and all the kids gotta go to all the places and everywhere in between, find your joy in the Lord. And what's beautiful about this letter is Paul's already showed us that he's doing that. And he's fallen, he's not perfect, but he shows us in chapter one. Many of us know Paul was a missionary and the worst thing that you can do to a missionary who lives their lives to scatter the gospel to the ends of the earth is lock them down. And notice Paul doesn't start his letter going, I don't know what I'm gonna do, I'm at a loss, I'm anxious, my thoughts are going everywhere. Who is Paul anyways? Like I'm only fulfilled when I'm, no, what does he say? He says, hey, I'm preaching the gospel here. In fact, if you're in chapter four, if you, it won't be on the screen, but if you look down to the, the last two verses, Paul's end of the letter he says, all the saints in Christ Jesus 
uh, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And I love verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. That is the Roman soldiers and the people working in the prison. So Paul says, hey, guess what? I'm bound here and I'm preaching the gospel here. And all the new believers, all your new brothers and sisters in Christ that work for Caesar, all these Roman soldiers and guards, they say hello now that they're in the faith because of my work here. He's preaching the gospel whether he's out or whether they lock him down, he's preaching the gospel. And then he says, hey, they might kill me, but guess what? Then I get Christ. And that's better for me, that's gain, I'd rather have that. He's got the world in checkmate. They let me out, I start preaching Christ. They lock me down, I'm preaching Christ in here and converting all their employees. They let me go, I preach Christ again. They kill me, I get Christ. Doesn't matter what they do. My joy is in the Lord. And people say, well, Paul, other people, you're locked down, other people are showing up and they're taking kind of the leadership role that you were in. And Paul says, are they preaching Christ? So what? Great. Now they're more bold to preach Christ. And in that, I rejoice. Do what you want to me. My joy is in Christ. In every circumstance, my joy is in the Lord. Philippians 1.21, the, the, the thrust of the whole book. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, in every circumstance of my life, my purpose, my reason, my joy comes from knowing Christ and making him known to the people around me. And whether you let me out, I can have my joy in Christ. You lock me up, I can have my joy in Christ. You can kill me. I get the fulfillment of my joy in Christ. You let me go, I'm preaching Christ. In every circumstance, he can rejoice. Why? Because his joy does not come from his earthly circumstances. Do you see that? And if you're finding your worth and your value and your purpose and your reason in anything earthly, it will always come up empty. It will always fall short. It will never fully and finally satisfy you. And Paul says, hey, root your anchor in the Lord in knowing him and making him known. And in that way, whether you lose a loved one or whether Monday was stressful, you can still rejoice in the Lord in knowing him and making him known. You need a purpose and a reason and a joy that's greater than your circumstances because our circumstances can change in a moment as we saw this week. We are much more fragile than you and I want to admit. My life can change with a text message and a phone call as many lives changed on Tuesday with a phone call. The biggest lie we believe is security. The only security we have is in the gospel of what Jesus has done. And you can be sealed and saved and secure in the finished work of Christ. But Paul is writing to this church and he has a credibility to be able to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice always. And he says, Christ is my life. It doesn't matter what happens. I'm gonna live to know Christ, to show Christ, to preach Christ, to enjoy Christ. How is he gonna do this? In Philippians chapter two, he says, I look back to Christ as my example. I have the same mind in me that Christ had when he took on the form of a servant and he humbled himself, when he came to serve humanity, when he was obedient to his father, even to the point of death on a cross, when he didn't... Um, Count equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage, but he used his equality with God for our advantage and he made himself nothing. He considered others better than themselves. Paul says, hey, how do I live a life to the glory of Christ? I put the same mind on that Christ had when he humbled himself and served others. 
And not just that, now I press on, Philippians 3, towards the goal, which is what? Which is Christ. I wanna know Christ, I wanna know him and the power of his resurrection, I wanna share in his sufferings. So Christ is my life in chapter one, he's my example in chapter two, he's my goal and my prize in chapter three, and in chapter four, we're gonna see how do we navigate the brokenness of this life. Christ is my strength to get me through each day as I press on towards him, to know him and to show him and to enjoy him. Paul says, I haven't arrived. He's my goal. He says, not that I've attained it, but I press on every day to know him more, to enjoy him more. And he gives me the strength to do so. That's the book of Philippians in a nutshell. Chapter one, he's my life. Chapter two, he's my example. Chapter three, he's my goal. He's my prize. And chapter four, he's my strength. And we see right here, Paul saying, rejoice in all times, in all circumstances. And this is principle here, the mark of a true believer, the mark, I would say the mark of a mature believer is that we can find joy in all circumstances because the longer we live in this broken world, the, long, the, the quicker we realize that I, it is foolish to anchor my joy into anything on this earth, anything that this life can give me. I've got to anchor my joy in Christ. And the mark of a mature believer is that regardless of our circumstances, we can still weep, we can still have sorrow, but in the midst of our sorrow, we can still find a way to rejoice because God has given us the ultimate gift in his son. Does that make sense? So he says rejoice. There's a couple other texts I would give reference to. Um, in 1 Peter chapter four, Paul says, don't be surprised, or Peter writes, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Some of us, we struggle with prayer because we haven't paid enough attention to God's word and we pray for things that God never promised us. We pray for God not to give us any trouble when Jesus literally said, in this world, you will have trouble. And we go, God, what are you doing? And it's because we don't know his word and we're praying for things that God never promised. And he said, hey, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I've overcome. I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna give you the grace to make it through. I can redeem every circumstance for the glory of myself and for the good of my children. So take heart. So Peter says, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Something strange not, is not happening. And then James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing but i want to be clear rejoicing in all circumstances applies to trial it applies to suffering but it doesn't mean that we go seek it out paul's not foolishly saying go look for suffering go seek suffering go seek out tragedy he's not saying that but he's saying at all times, in all circumstances, because of what Christ has done in you, you have a reason to rejoice. We know that in the gospel, we are saved, we are sealed, we are secure, and come what may in this life, that we will never taste death if we're in Christ because Jesus tasted it for us. That we can have joy in every circumstance. Romans 8, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation and there's no separation. That's how the book starts and ends. No condemnation for those who are in Christ and no separation from his love if you're in Christ. Nothing can separate you. Height, depth, angels, principalities, demons, you name it, nothing can ever separate you from his love. That's the goodness of what we have in Christ. And that's why we can rejoice in all circumstances. And then he says this in verse five, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So Paul gives another command 
This let your is, is a command. It's in the imperative in the Greek. And he says, let your reasonableness. Now, what does that mean? The word reasonableness there is, means it's a gentleness. It's a self-control. It's, it's, it's this kindness or this measured um, spirit about ourselves. That because we can rejoice in all circumstances, that regardless of what happens, we can face the trials of this life, the events of this life, the circumstances of this life with some kind of gentleness. That the mature believer doesn't live on this roller coaster every day when suddenly something happens and my day goes from 100 to zero because of my circumstances. That we're not on this emotional roller coaster every day, that we receive the circumstances of this life with a kind of supernatural gentleness. And it works out in how we treat one another. And I fail at this all the time. But as I walk with Christ, what should happen is when my day doesn't go the way I want to or when a circumstance happens that could cause anxiety is I don't let that stress um, work itself out on the people that I love. So many times I, forgetting the gospel, can allow a hard day, a hard event, stressful times, and I can punish those around me for the bad time that I'm having in my own life. And Paul says, no, that we can rejoice in all circumstances and we can receive every circumstance with this kind of supernatural gentleness that works itself out in one another. That when circumstances change, which they will all the time, that we can receive them with this kind of measured, gentle spirit. Even though we don't understand what God's doing, we can trust his heart. And he says, hey, let that be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And the one thing that's gonna keep us from rejoicing in all circumstances, and the one thing that's gonna keep us as a people, as believers in Christ, from letting our reasonableness be made known to each other is our anxiety, which is why Paul naturally just moves into that next in his argument, in the next verse. The one thing that's gonna keep us from rejoicing at all times in the Lord is for the enemy to get us caught up in the anxieties of our problems, the anxieties of this life, the brokenness of this world, to get caught up and be pulled in all these different directions about our day. It will keep us from rejoicing in the Lord and, and living a reasonable, gentle, kind, measured life with the people that we love. Is when we're too focused on our problems and our issues and our stresses of this life, which are all real and legitimate, that we can't love the people around us and we can't rejoice in the Lord. So naturally, look at verse six. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul gives us another command. This section, these couple verses are full of commands. It's in the imperative. Do not be anxious about anything. It's funny in the Greek because he says be anxious for. It's a command. And then the word after it is nothing. And we just made it sound a little simpler. And we says don't be anxious for anything. Paul says be anxious for zero. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And nothing in the Greek is at the beginning of the sentence. In Greek, it doesn't matter what order you put the words in. We'll talk about that more next week. You, you, because the endings determine if it's the subject or the verb and the nouns and direct objects and all those kind of things. So you put the words that you want to emphasize at the front. And Paul puts nothing. First word of the sentence. Don't be anxious for anything. It's a command in scripture. For any of us that think that we're good enough to earn God's righteousness on our own, try to obey this command for the rest of the day and see how much will and resolve you have to earn your own salvation. Be anxious for nothing. 
It's a command in scripture. And don't miss that. There is not a single thing in this life that God calls you to be anxious about. And some of us, we go, well, that's my job as a parent. My job is to worry about my kids. That's my job as a CEO or as a business owner is to worry about my business. No. Now God's given us rules and he's given us roles in this life and burdens to carry. And he calls us to carry those roles and responsibilities, but he doesn't cause you to be anxious about them. He's not commanding you to worry about your children. He's given you a role to parent them and steward them and love them, but he doesn't call you to be anxious about them. That's where we deviate from the problem. But so many of us, anxiety is a part of the definition of the role that we have. That's my role as a mom or as a dad, is to be anxious about how we're gonna keep the lights on and is to worry about all these things. No, your role is to provide and is to nurture as a mom and is to care but it's not to be anxious. There is not a single thing in this life that God calls us to be anxious about. Not a single one. Be anxious for nothing. And then he says this, but in all things, and don't miss the contrast here, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, prayer. I want you to see that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, I want you to pray. And some of you are like, okay, preacher, of course you would say that, right? Hey, just pray about it. But think about this. How's your alternative going? For so many of us, it's be anxious for nothing, but in everything, consume a ton of carbs, right? That's me, chief of sinners. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, turn to this bottle or to this website or to more productivity at work or to this unhealthy habit. Go shop, go consume unhealthy amounts of social media, For some of us, that's our Philippians. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, go do this unhealthy habit. Go pursue this unhealthy thing. Go create and try to keep a persona online to mask and to void and to numb the pain that we actually feel inside. Go compare myself to, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, compare myself to someone who's not measuring up as much as I am. How's the remedy going for all of us? It's not working, is it? And I would venture to say, Paul says more than just pray about it. We'll look at that in just a second. But think about the remedies that we choose. We all turn to something to try to numb the pain of this life. And the problem with those things is one, you don't get to just numb anxiety. When you turn to a relationship or to a bottle or to pornography, to a pill, to a substance, to excess work, to shopping, to social media, you don't get to choose which emotions you numb. So when you numb your anxiety, and it works for a moment, you don't just numb your anxiety. Some of you know this from personal experience. When you turn to that thing to try to numb the pain of this life, you numb your joy, you numb your drive, you numb the whole thing. Your happiness, your excitement, your expectation, you numb it all when you go and try to numb the pain of this life and whatever you turn to. And what's even worse than that is it doesn't fully and finally numb the pain. Once the high wears off, once the bottle's empty, once the website's closed, whatever it is, the pain comes right back. And now you've got more than just your pain. You've got guilt on top of that. You've got shame on top of that. And it didn't solve the the root issue. It's just made it worse. And all of us, the medicators that we choose aren't helping. So how's your alternative going? How's mine going this week? Those are hard things to think about. 
And Paul says, be anxious for nothing but in everything. Some of you, it's the last thing you would try, but it's the first thing Paul's commanding us to do. He says, but in everything, prayer. Our alternatives aren't helping. And that word supplication, he says prayer and supplication means to humbly ask or to beg. He says, humble prayer and seeking the Lord's face with thanksgiving. And some of you are like, okay, that's where I draw the line, right? I get it that I'm stressed. I get it that I need to turn to the Lord, but to be thankful? And I wanna be clear. Paul's not saying be thankful for the tragedy that you're in per se. He's not saying be thankful that you have someone in your family who doesn't know the Lord. He's saying be thankful in who God is in the midst of your trial. Be thankful for the gospel and what God has done in the midst of your circumstance. Does that make sense? There are circumstances that are painful in the moment that one day we might look back on and say, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but I'm thankful for what God has done in it and that he's brought me through it. But he's not saying be thankful for the unbelievers in your life or anything like that. He's saying that as we navigate the trials of this life and the brokenness of this life, we can approach him humbly in prayer with thanksgiving that we have a God who controls all circumstances and he wants to hear us. He longs to hear our prayers. It makes him happy when his children come to him and give us our cares or give him our cares. That we can be thankful that the God who rules all circumstances longs to hear us in the midst of our bad circumstances in prayer. That we can approach him with thanksgiving, that God cares, that he knows, that he sees and he hears me, that he allows me to even come to him And we can be thankful that God has a plan and that in all things, he promises in Romans 8, verse 28, God will work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God will work all things for the glory of himself and the good of his children. We can bank on that. So he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And then he says this, let your request be made known. That let it be known is the same verb he's already used. Let your reasonableness be made known. How are we gonna do that? How am I gonna let my reasonableness, my kindness and my gentleness with you be made known to you is when I'm alone with God and letting my cares be made known to him. Some of us, we hold on to our cares and we take it out on the people around us. And Paul says, how are you gonna live a life that's gentle and kind and reasonable towards others? It's totally dependent on you getting on your knees and letting your cares and your anxieties and your worries be made known to God. That when I do that, and we'll see what he gives us when we do that, I will be a reasonable person. I'll be kind and gentle to the people around me. Does that make sense? I love how he uses the same verb, and it's not an accident. Let it be made known. And I love that that's in the passive form. Hey, you have anxieties, you have worries. Many of us wake up to all sorts of cares. You pull out this electronic device and you pull it up and they just start rushing in. I'm feeling this now that I'm in my 30s. I just wake up with, what was that? And that hurts. And I think I just heard a pop. And you, and you, I now gotta go to work and I've got all these things. What, my inbox is full. And we just wake up to anxieties. And what does Paul say? He doesn't say suppress them. He doesn't say cover them. It's almost as if they wanna come out. He says, let them be made known. They're they're just waiting to come out. And he says, let them out and then just push them up. Let them be made known to God. Let them out. And when I consistently go to God and I give him my cares, and it doesn't have to be anything major. God is all powerful, but he is intimately personal. And he cares about the most trivial things in our lives because he cares about us. 
And Paul says, hey, the way that you're gonna live a life that's reasonable to the people around you, that's kind and gentle and loving, like we're called to live, is directly dependent on your ability to be alone with God and to give him those cares. To not let your anxiety drive you, but to let it out, not suppress it, not medicate it, but let it come out and give it to him. And then he says this, how is all that true? How is praying to God gonna make me a reasonable person to the people around me? Gonna let me handle my circumstances with gentleness and with self-control and kindness? How does that work? Verse seven, because the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I wanna be clear here, this, is, this peace isn't something ethereal, it's not some abstract peace, it's the peace, don't miss the preposition there, of God. That when you give God your cares and your worries and your anxieties, he will give you his peace. In the middle of the circumstances, it is a gift of his grace. And it doesn't mean you're gonna understand why. It doesn't say give God your cares and he'll give you all the answers. It doesn't say give all your cares and he's gonna explain the whole situation. He says, no, I've got something better than you understanding because even if you understood, you might not like what I'm doing. But God's gonna do all that we would do if we know all that God knows. He's good and he's kind and he's loving. And God says, instead of answering all your questions, I'm gonna give you something better. I'm gonna give you peace. That you can trust me, that my heart towards you is loving and is good and is kind, that I see you and I understand you and I know you don't understand and you don't know why and you wouldn't wish this on anyone else and you don't feel prepared for this, but I'm going to give you my peace. I love you, I see you, I care for you, I made you to know me and enjoy me and I'm not leaving you. I'm gonna give you grace to get through this moment. And Paul says, hey, as we start giving those things to God, he gives us his peace. And it's a peace that we can't put into words. It's just there, knowing that God sees me and loves me and cares for me, that he died for me. God knows why, God has a plan, and I can be at peace with that. And then here in verse eight, this is where I would say, freedom from anxiety is a battle of the mind. It is a battle of the mind. Hebrews talks about that we have to strive to enter this rest. That if you wanna be free from anxious thoughts, you've gotta work for it. And I wanna be clear, I'm not preaching you gotta save yourself. Jesus has purchased by his blood our peace. But it's a battle of the mind that you have to actively engage. Why? Because what happens? I'll sit alone with God, I'll pray, I'll let those things be made known, and then if I don't set my mind on something else, what's gonna happen two minutes later? I'm gonna think about it again. Here I go again, God. I'm giving it to you again. I'm thinking about it. And then I'll walk away. And anxiety, freedom from anxiety, peace with God is purchased by Christ and it is a battle of the mind, which is why naturally Paul says this. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul says, the temptation is to look at your circumstances and let your mind be drawn in all these different directions. What does he say? When you do that, stop, give those things to God, receive his peace, and then set your mind on what is true. Set your mind, think about things that are true, lovely, commendable, pure, just, right, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about those things. Who's he painting a picture of? Himself. And Jesus and what he's done in the gospel, that for you to walk through your day free from anxiety 
is this battle of the mind. It's as those cares come up. It's not a sin to have those thoughts come into your mind. You can't control those thoughts. But when they do, Lord, I'm giving this to you. I'm reminding myself of your goodness. And I'm gonna set my mind on what I know is true. That you love me, that you have a plan for me, that you died for me, that come what may in this life, my anchor is in you. My eternal security is in you. You are the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in you will never die. You'll provide for me, you'll care for me. And it might not be what I have in mind, but I can trust your heart. and Set your mind on things above. If you keep your mind fixed on your circumstances, you will be anxious over and over and over again. Paul says in Colossians, set your mind on things above. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace. Who's what? Whose mind is stayed on you. If you wanna walk through this life with peace and have a reasonableness that's only found in freedom in Christ to the people around you, to your family, to your spouse, to your children, where we're not lashing out or flipping out when something doesn't go our way, it comes. When those anxieties come, those worries come, we give those to the Lord. We let them come out. We don't mask them. We don't suppress them. We don't medicate them. We go to our knees in prayer. We give those to the Lord. We receive his peace and we set our mind on what we know is true. And Paul says that's where peace comes from. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Isaiah says he will keep you in peace when we stay our mind on him and what he's done. And I'll close with these last couple of verses or verse nine. I love this. Paul says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And I just find that's discipleship 101. If you don't have someone in your life who is further along than you, Paul says, you saw this in me, you heard me say this to you, you received this teaching from me and you learned it, now put it to practice. And if you don't have somebody in your life who's further along than you and has a gentleness or a reasonableness regardless of what circumstances come their way. I would encourage you to find that person. We'd be happy to connect you with someone in this body who can walk alongside of you. And they're not perfect. They don't have it all figured out. They're still pressing on towards Christ. But that can be an example to you to help you practice these things. Peace has been won in the gospel. I wanna be clear. You don't have to go out and work for your own peace. It's available to you in Christ. He lived the life that we could never live. He overcame the power of the law. He died the death that we deserve. Peace is available. It is purchased by the blood of Christ. Not just peace in your circumstances, but you can have peace with the God of the universe. That his wrath towards our sin has been satisfied in Jesus' life and his death. You can have peace with the one who made you, the one you were made to know. That you can be at peace with him, and because of that, you can have peace within yourself. And when you have peace with God and peace within yourself, you will be at peace with others. And you can navigate the circumstances of this life with peace. That is available to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to work for it, earn it. You don't deserve it. None of us in here deserve it. But it's available to you by faith in Christ. Amen? And I'll say this just as a, as a mode of application The world, the watching world, looking at the church is not impressed when we sing songs about the Prince of Peace and then we navigate Monday through Saturday with tons of anxiety. And that's not a guilt trip to say, do better, try harder. But in living lives worthy of the gospel, 
peace is available to us. It is readily available. As we run to the Lord in prayer, we give him our cares, we give him our anxieties. Peter writes, because he cares for us. So let's be a people who give those to the Lord and receive his peace. And we'll see the the reasonableness, the kindness, the love, the gentleness work itself out amongst us for the good of us and for the glory of God. Amen? If you don't have this peace, let today be the day that you receive it in putting your faith in Jesus and what he's done. We would love to talk to you about that. So as we respond, as we sing, um, if you have a circumstance that's causing you to be anxious, we'd love to pray for it. Doesn't matter what it is. If you have a need that constantly causes you to worry, we'd love to carry that burden with you, to, to push that up to the Lord with you. We'll be available to pray with you. We'll respond and sing, and then Colin will come and give us our benediction this morning. So let's pray. We'll respond in song. Colin will dismiss us. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here that's walking in darkness, if there's anyone in here that's tried over and over again to find lasting peace, God, they are in good company. That is all of our story. That before we got to know you and your grace, we came looking for peace in all the wrong places. And God, I pray that today would be the day where they would behold the cross. They would look to what you've done. God, there they would find peace. Peace knowing that their sin's been paid for. Peace knowing that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled and what you've done. Peace knowing that they can rest in the fact that God loves them and they're healed and whole and holy in what Jesus has done. God, help us to strive to enter that rest. Those of us that put our faith in you, God, help us to continue to run back to the cross when our mind goes elsewhere. God, thank you that you give us peace as we pray. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.